Before we start the show, if you are missing our daily episodes from before the election, give the NPR One app a try. It's got all the radio reporting that we do for NPR and all of your favorite podcasts as well. You can find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We are here with our weekly roundup of political news. We're going to talk about Donald Trump's latest appointees, including Steve Bannon. Also going to discuss the ongoing debate over normalizing Donald Trump. Plus, we're not going to talk politics and can't let it go this week. That is our weekly segment when we all share something we cannot stop thinking about. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon. I covered the Trump campaign. I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we're a bit split up today. Uh, Scott, Domenico, and I are all in a booth at NPR headquarters in D.C. But Sarah is working from home in Virginia. How's it going? I hope you're like on a couch, reclined at the moment. Truth be told, truth be told, I am uh, I'm spread out on my <laughs> nine-year-old's uh, twin bed. <laughs> I'm looking at some sheets that have football helmets and baseballs on them. Wow. Um, that sounds like a luxurious is, studio. Yeah. It, it's very luxurious, but it works. <laughs> So to caveat with these roundup episodes, we'll never have time to cover everything going on in the week. So be sure to keep up with more of our stories and our coverage at nprpolitics.org. Also, some housekeeping before we start. One, we're going to talk about how the media covers Trump today. That'll be in the second segment of the show. And we'll hear from a special guest, my friend, NPR's media correspondent, David Folkenflick. Stick around for that. He's got some really great insight to share. Two, Got to say thank you all for your patience as we pulled the throttle back this week after the election. Lots of folks were in different parts of the country and had to get here and there and just take a day or two to, you know, decompress. Thanks for your patience with that. We're going to get back to our regular schedule of episodes from here on out. And here's what that schedule means for you. There will be new weekly roundups that will come out Thursday evening or sometimes Friday if there's a lot of big news that's happening on Thursday. Then we'll have shorter episodes, usually listener mail. That'll happen earlier in the week on Monday or Tuesday. And, of course, as there is really, really big news, we'll have some quick takes as it happens. So, again, shorter Monday-Tuesday episode, longer Thursday-Friday episode, and quick takes on big news as it happens. Also, final thing, if you're missing our daily episodes, uh, you can definitely turn on NPR in the morning or afternoon. We actually spend lots of our time working on stories that you hear there on the radio. Um, In most places, the stories are heard on Morning Edition. That show airs in the morning, uh, and they're also heard on All Things Considered. That one airs in the afternoon. If you don't know how to listen or know the exact times when those shows air where you are, you can go to npr.org slash stations to find your local station. And, of course, there is always the good old NPR One app as well. So this first topic, I have to admit... Uh, it's been a lot to follow. I've been out covering these anti-Trump protests that are continuing. So it seems as if every time I check my phone, there's a new headline about the Trump transition. Lots of names being thrown out. Some accounts it's going very smoothly. Other accounts, not so much. Who knows the most about this whole process and where we are now? Probably Sarah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I've been calling into some of these um, transition phone calls. The the campaign just late this week started having daily calls. They say they will be daily uh, for the foreseeable future subject to change. But uh, calls to kind of keep people up to speed on what's going on. There's been a lot of reporting and a lot of criticism about how quickly this is moving along or not moving along. Um, Donald Trump, of course, this week tweeted that it's 
going so well, going so smoothly, and that he's talking to lots of world leaders. But so far, we only know a couple of positions that have officially been filled, right? So his chief of staff, Reince Priebus, uh, formerly of the Republican National Committee, and he's named uh, Steve Bannon, formerly of Breitbart News, a very controversial figure, his senior strategist. Other than that, um, they say they're moving toward getting these landing teams in place that go to federal agencies and departments and basically coordinate between the Trump transition team and the old Obama administration team to get ready for the changeover in January. But a lot that's still unknown. Okay, Steve Bannon, former head of Breitbart, that is an online platform for white nationalism and sexism and a lot of other isms. We're going to have more on him later. Scott, so this transition, though, is that train on schedule? I think we are still very much in the normal range. If you look back to Barack Obama, he named his chief of staff two days after the election. Donald Trump named his chief of staff five days after the election. Barack Obama named his first cabinet secretary 14 days after the election. We haven't reached that point yet. So we're still sort of in the normal range. Some interesting notes, though, if you go back to George H.W. Bush, he named his first cabinet secretary one day after the election, said James Baker would be his secretary of state. And Ronald Reagan named his first cabinet secretary three days after the election, and it was the Secretary of Education. Whose name is? Terrell Bell. I love that name. Imagine the the world was waiting anxiously to see who was Ronald Reagan going to name his his Secretary of Education back in 1980. Terrell Bell. Well, you know, there's been an effort to uh, bring some seriousness to how campaigns go about picking uh, their new administration. There's a group that has been urging the nominees of both parties to start a whole team to go forward and try to name up to even 4,000 potential people who they're going to have to fill out down to sub-cabinet positions. Um, This is a group that um, has gotten funding from Congress to do that. The Trump campaign and now what's to be the Trump administration didn't quite take that as seriously, didn't fill out a lot of those names. And then you saw Chris Christie, who had been in charge of the transition process, dismissed uh, and Mike Pence now has taken that over. And a lot of the people who were kind of tied to Chris Christie uh, have not been part of the advisory committees anymore to uh, to this new transition. Um, among those was was former Congressman Mike um, from Michigan, Mike Rogers, who was chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. You know, he's out and he said he told CNN that he thinks there was some confusion going on about the chain of command uh, in the transition process. And, you know, another thing we should point out about the the transition that was sort of pre-existing that we were talking about with Chris Christie being in charge, when he left, that meant that there was actually paperwork that had to be signed by Vice President-elect Mike Pence to kind of make everything official because there is like an official process that has to be followed for all these major uh, handoffs to take place. So that might have slowed things down a little bit too. Let's get back uh, to... Two men that have been formally appointed, uh, Reince Priebus as chief of staff and Steve Bannon as senior strategist. How should we expect the two of these men to work together? They, they seem to be diametrically opposed. So the Trump campaign deliberately presented the appointment of the chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and the chief strategist, Steve Bannon, together in one news release. They described them as having equal roles in the White House. And you could see this as sort of a bone for each dog. There was a <laughs> – uh, Reince Priebus is the – 
consummate sort of insider, knows the ways of the political establishment. Uh, For those who are hoping that Donald Trump is going to run a more sort of traditional Republican White House, they can take some encouragement that Reince Priebus will be the guy there in the White House making the trains run on time, keeping the staff on task. For the insurgents who are looking for Donald Trump to shake things up, for the anti-establishment folks who backed Donald Trump, Steve Bannon is uh, perhaps uh, a bone for them, a sign that this is not just going to be business as usual and that Donald Trump is not just another Republican. Now, there's obviously a lot of baggage that comes along with Steve Bannon, uh, but he played this role in the campaign. He was sort of the outsider voice uh, as CEO of the campaign. And when the announcement was made, Steve Bannon actually got top billing. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more to be discussed about Steve Bannon. The second part of our show, we're going to get into that in detail. So stay tuned for that. Well, and, you know, as Scott talks about this sort of relationship between Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus, you know, I do find it interesting that this is in it tells you a lot about how Donald Trump would govern. You know, you can expect likely a lot of drama. Trump likes these kind of power circles to kind of war with themselves if that's what it takes. Uh, And he's able to make the decision on his own, consolidate his own power and be able to elevate or uh, deflate whichever power faction he feels like at whatever time. You know, and that's what I heard from sources close to the campaign during the campaign is that Trump does enjoy playing people off of each other. We saw that with the dynamic between his original campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, and his subsequent campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who then left the campaign. But we saw this again and again. We saw a lot of sort of tumult within the campaign. Uh, and, it, you know, from what I've been told, Donald Trump sort of sees that as, you know, a creative process. And we may very well see more of that in the administration. I would also point out that um, Trump kind of owes both of these people. Um, He's close to Bannon. And Reince Priebus and his RNC operation, uh, in many ways, are probably a good part of the reason that Trump won, um, because they are the ones that had uh, a grassroots on the ground structure in place during the campaign to get out the vote. And and the Trump campaign relied very heavily on Reince Priebus and those under him. Uh, so in, in many ways, it looks like he's rewarding two people that uh, did a lot for his campaign. You know, and I'll, I'll say one other thing about this. You know, if you look at Trump and you some people may see disorganization in this kind of power play. But others might see it as listening to a diversity of viewpoints. Um, There's heavy criticism sometimes from uh, other past presidents who had valued loyalty over diverse viewpoints. So there is the potential that if you have somebody who wants to hear from a lot of different warring factions, even if that's what it comes to within, that that person feels like they can make that ultimate decision and listen to everyone. Although loyalty still seems to be pretty high on the uh, yes, high on the scorecard for Donald Trump. <laughs> no question. It does. And whether or not this is the intended uh, goal, the, the effect of having warring factions within a campaign or within an administration is it does prevent any single person other than the top dog from getting too powerful. All right. Let's talk about the Democrats for a little bit. They are trying to now rebuild after their defeat last week. The president started this week with a big press conference before he left for his last overseas trip as president. Obama said he's working to be helpful to Trump during this transition, advised him that a campaign is different than governing. Here's some tape of that press conference of Obama talking about the future of the party. We have to compete everywhere. We have to show up everywhere. Uh, We have to work at a grassroots level, something that's been a running thread in my career. Um, You know, 
I won Iowa not because the demographics dictated that I would win Iowa. It was because I spent 87 days going to every small town and fair and fish fry and DFW Hall. And there were some counties where I might have lost, but maybe I lost by 20 points instead of 50 points. There's some counties maybe I won that people didn't expect because people had a chance to see you and listen to you and get a sense of who you stood for and who you were fighting for. Okay, those Iowa comments right there, <laughs> that sounded like some low-key shade of Hillary Clinton. Mm, I'm not sure about low-key. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. You know, No, I mean seriously because Barack Obama was somebody who worked very hard maybe because he was a black man. He he compensated or tried to compensate with this jobs message for white working class men. He spent a lot of time in places like Michigan and Wisconsin uh, to try to make sure he got those voters who he thought in his campaign was wary that for those kind of lunch bucket white Democrats, union guys who might have some problem with his race that he could show, look, I'm an organizer. I'm like you guys. I have a jobs message. I care about you. This is not just about kicking Hillary Clinton and her campaign staff and strategist when they're down. This is also about offering up a map to the Democrats as they look for a way out of the wilderness. And that may mean you've got to compete in all 50 states. It means you've got to compete not just in the big cities and not just for the groups of voters who are most likely to side with you, but also for those who might be a reach. And Obama has said, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win the the rural county, but there's a difference between losing 60-40 and 80-20. No kidding. That would have been the difference. I mean, Hillary Clinton lost by just tens of thousands of votes in those places. Had she campaigned there, but had her team seen polling that showed her there, you know, they had problems apparently with their internal tracking polling. Uh, You know, in the very last week, Tim Kaine was dispatched to Wisconsin. Uh, One senior advisor on the campaign said, boy, why are we heading to Wisconsin suddenly? You know, and and we were all asking those questions in the last week as they were starting to scramble and go there. But they didn't have the foundational infrastructure uh, to campaign in some of those places to reduce those margins and beat back a caricature of Hillary Clinton. But what's so weird to me, seeing how she wasn't able to do better with that demo, when she ran for Senate in, was it 2000? Uh She did so well with upstate working class white New Yorkers. Well, and in the Democratic primary of 2008, she tended to do better with white working class voters than Barack Obama did. That is an irony. I mean, the fact that she didn't campaign the way she did in 2000, I think, is one of the fundamental failings. Well, And the country's bigger than one state. I get it. Well, this time around, that upstate New York strategy that she'd had to try to win in reduce the rural margins. That was the whole key because she could have potentially been running against Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor of New York, could have reduced the margins in the city and the suburbs. And it seemed like she forgot that entire strategy. We could relitigate this campaign for the next few hours, but looking <laughs> forward, um, one of the big things that has to happen next for Democrats is choosing who will lead the Democratic National Committee. We've seen former Vermont Governor Howard Dean throw his hat in the ring. He led the DNC actually before from 05 to 09. But also a big name that is in the mix is Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison. He is the first black Muslim elected to Congress. Uh, He was a big Bernie Sanders surrogate during his campaign, and he has the backing of Sanders now. What should we expect in that race? And what really or how much really can a new DNC chair do to turn their ship around? Well, 
It's interesting. You know, Keith Ellison is an interesting figure. He he was sort of laughed off of the stage on ABC News. I remember that. About a year, a little more than a year ago for, for suggesting that, oh, my goodness, Donald Trump could maybe be the Republican nominee. Um, so he had, you know, a bit of foresight there. Um, and obviously, you know, being a black Muslim, he would be, you know, kind of a new shake things up kind of figure. Um, now, Howard Dean in his day was kind of a, you know, an outsider figure himself. Operative phrase in his day. In his day. Well, it's been a while. And Howard Dean was a controversial pick back then. And he had this controversial 50 state strategy. And there were a lot of people with orange hats running around uh, in states that Democrats didn't think they needed to compete in. But when you go to you know a few years forward when Barack Obama ran in 2008, there was a lot more groundwork that had been created uh, by the Howard Dean Democratic National Committee than a lot of people gave him credit for and look back kind of fondly on the energy and enthusiasm and real grassroots organizing that it took that his DNC did. You can't just have a figurehead. You need to have somebody who is going to go out, make the argument, and get organized in a laser-like focused way. And he seems to have the energy energy and enthusiasm and passion, at least, to do that. And then we're going to go to Wisconsin and (laughs) Michigan and then to the White House. (laughs) All right, time for a quick break. Before we go, we heard from some listeners who were unplugging a bit after the election. That's fine. I get it. No hard feelings. Um, If you were one of those folks, we have a big episode behind this one. It's called The Election of Donald Trump. It's an hour-long special featuring... Ten of us who you've heard on the podcast all year, we all take turns talking about Trump and how he won and his first hundred days and how he might work with Congress. Lots of really good information in there. Go check that out. All right. Once we come back, we'll be joined by David Folkenflik, NPR's media correspondent, to talk about coverage of President-elect Trump. Support for NPR politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with this completely online process. Safely share your bank statements and pay stubs with the touch of a button. Ditch the paperwork and use your phone or tablet to get approved for purchase or refinance with a custom mortgage solution in minutes. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash nprpolitics. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower health care costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. Okay, we're back. In case y'all forgot, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And joining us from NPR New York, David. I'm David Falkenflick. I am uh, cover the media for NPR, and I'm this podcast newbie. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. Uh, delight to join you Hi, guys. Hi, David. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> ah, welcome. <laughs> yeah. So just a warning to our listeners, we're going to air some language in this segment that you might not want younger listeners to hear. Let's talk about Steve Bannon. We have to talk about Steve Bannon. As we mentioned earlier, he's going to be a senior strategist in the Trump White House. 
that announcement kicked off a flurry of conversation about Bannon, his record, what kind of online groups he's tied to, and how the media covers Trump in this incoming administration. David, you've been in the weeds on this. Catch us up. Well, it's kind of amazing, actually, that Steve Bannon didn't get more attention when he was uh, named to be a major advisor, right, uh, behind the scenes to Donald Trump when there was the reorganization of the campaign over the summer. Uh, Steve Bannon has been, perhaps most notably uh, of late, the executive chairman of Breitbart News. He had previously been, uh, you know, a figure at Goldman Sachs. He had been, uh, he had headed the Biosphere 2 experiment in the Arizona desert what is that? for a little while. Uh, that, you know, that was that uh, Oh, Biodome? Yeah. yeah. The, Shut up. That's a real thing, too? That is a real thing. He was the, the acting CEO of the second iteration of wow. it. Uh, he ended up actually being a, an investment guy in Hollywood and getting sort of by accident a, a personal stake in the a syndication rights to Seinfeld, which ended up making him just untold millions of dollars unexpectedly. So he's had this really weird resume, right? And then he goes and he uh, he, he's pretty conservative guy. He ended up taking over uh, the running of Breitbart News after its founder, the conservative provocateur Andrew Breitbart, died unexpectedly some years ago. And what Breitbart News did under Steve Bannon was that it embraced a certain sort of white nationalist outlook. It certainly was appealing to what has come to be called the alt-right, and I've been slapped around online for calling it that because that is the term they choose. People say that rightly that alt-right appeals to a nationalist and uh, extreme traditionalist notion of what America should be like that seemingly uh, would exclude from a lot of people's standpoint – Gays, uh, women who are who are feminists, uh, Jews, uh, African Americans, Latinos, Muslims—you you could almost name it. Immigrants, you, you name it. And the stuff on the site is so uh, pitched to offend people who might look at a more inclusive notion of America. That for Steve Bannon to walk into the White House and to be influencing the shape of America for the next four years, I think has has upset and startled a lot of folks. Yeah, and let's just clarify. I mean. The definition of white nationalists um, is a belief that America is a nation just for white people. Sure. I mean, there are people who are, for example, there. You know, he has talked about the importance in some tapes that have come to light about the Judeo-Christian tradition. And the, there's a notion of uh, a European heritage for America and a notion of particularly a white European uh, notion of America. Now, he does – That excludes other that types That very of much excludes other types of people. Now, he does not speak about it in – except for the Judeo-Christian element of it, so purified a form. But it's very clear. Uh, you know, we have some cuts. We have a cut, I think, of him talking actually on a radio show in which he was speaking with Donald Trump uh, his, uh, on Sirius XM show for Breitbart News about the uh, value of immigrants in Silicon Valley, which is something that Trump mm-hmm. in this interview is actually defending, despite you know some of his anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric on the trail. I think we have that cut we can play. And so this tape actually comes from November of 2015 on Bannon's radio show. We've got to be able to keep great people in the country. We've got to create, you know, job creators. One man went to, I think it was Harvard, there was a story a a month ago, went to Harvard, did well, good student, wanted to stay in the country, wasn't allowed to, went back to his home in India, started up a company. Now it's a very, very successful company with thousands of people. He wanted to do that here. We have to be careful of that, Steve. You know, we have to keep our talented people in this country. Um, I think you agree with that. Do you agree? Well, I I got a tougher, you know, when two thirds or three quarters of the CEOs in Silicon Valley are from South Asia or from Asia, I think on on, on on my point is that a country's more like sessions, a country's more than an economy. We're a civic society. I want to see. In any event, you have to keep them legally. Yes, yes. When people come in, 
So he's kind of saying that there's too many Asians in Silicon Valley. That seems to be... Well, you know, he's saying that and he's also saying, gosh, you know, it's more than a dollars and cents thing. We're a civil society. And if you really think about that civil or civic society he's talking about, it's one where it's whites and it's not immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. If I can, it kind of seems like it echoes some of the things I heard from Trump supporters as I traveled the country, just a sense of cultural anxiety, you know, people saying, I, I have uh, minorities in my community and I, and I want them to feel welcome and I'm all for legal immigration. But I'd also talk to people, you know, at the same time they would say, but I just, I feel like everything is changing really quickly. I see so much, you know, change around me and they'd talk specifically about immigration. So just like a, like an anxiety about the way the country demographically is shifting. Why should I have to push one to hear English? It also explains a little bit of the rhetoric you hear on the campaign trail about political correctness, which is a weird thing to pop up at a presidential level. But you heard it in your reports and other places. When I talked to people, the few occasions I was on the trail, you'd hear things and they'd say, you know, I don't want there to be this political correctness preventing me from saying things. Well, here are some of the things that were said just in headlines of Breitbart articles that appeal to uh, these kinds of essentially in white nationalists or certainly uh, uh, alt-right kinds of readers. You know, birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. That's just a headline. It's stated as fact. Gabby Giffords, the gun control movement's human shield, she was somebody who was you know, gravely wounded in an attempt by somebody to assassinate her that you know, massacred nine people. Uh, there's no hiring bias against women in tech. They just suck at interviews. Uh, you had articles about uh, by this gay conservative provocateur who sort of embraces the alt-right even as he says he's not part of it. It's writer uh, for the site uh, who essentially talked about how having you know, in his depiction hordes of Muslim immigrants scared him as a gay man because he feared for his safety at the hands of these immigrants. You had a, just a, a, sort of a wave after wave of severe rhetoric coming through the site. Uh, so my question is how responsible – should we hold Steve Bannon for the work of this website? You know, I talked to Joel Pollack. He's the site's former editor-in-chief. He now serves as a legal counsel and, a, and an editor-at-large there. And he said, look, we shouldn't be held responsible for what all of our readers and, and, and supporters might do independently of us. And I think there's some truth to that. You don't want NPR to be held responsible for everything a listener might do. But I think you are responsible for the tenor of your publication, even an, an opinion uh, publication uh, like Breitbart. I think that's fair. And I, I think that uh, it, it does you know, affect our understanding of his character. I want to play two quick clips, if I might, of Bannon that indicate different elements of why I think that's the case, uh, even as I don't necessarily think Bannon holds all of the beliefs that, that are published there or all of the beliefs of the people that the site might appeal to. So the first one I want to play, it's uh, he was talking about liberal feminism and praising uh, conservatives such as Michelle Bachman and Sarah Palin as leaders and dismissing a liberal feminist with an anti-lesbian slur. It was in a, a conversation he had on a, a conservative California radio show. The women that would lead this country would be feminist. It would be pro-family. They would have husbands. They would love their children. Uh, you know, they wouldn't be a bunch of dykes that came from uh, the seven, you know, the seven sisters' schools up in New England. And just in case that was hard to hear, he said it wouldn't be a bunch of dykes that came from the seven sister schools up in New England. He's talking about essentially women who are, you know, the women's liberation movement, people who fought for equal rights for women. And he's saying that women that, you know, that, that would be leaders in the country should be essentially feminine and traditional, that they should have husbands and children. And and uh, it, it sounded and, to me almost sort of like a feminine appearance as well. And beyond that, that women who are feminists are not somehow pro-family, do not have husbands, do not love their children, that, that one 
one precludes the other. And I think that that's a denigrating as well. So that's in his voice. The second element which suggests that I want to dip in really quick while we're talking do. about his views on family. Got to point out here, uh, there's some family history yeah. of Bannon yeah. to be discussed. In 96, uh, his ex-wife said that Bannon physically attacked her. There's a police report that documents that. Also during a custody battle over their twins, Steve Bannon's wife said that he made anti-Semitic comments, uh, said that he didn't want his twin girls going to school with Jews. And that, and that happened several times during visits to schools. And i got to say that Bannon has denied those comments. David, what's your view on like what what this would say about how he would counsel or how he has counseled Donald Trump in the campaign, but then as President Trump? Well, he's, you know, in some ways he's been credited for making Trump a little bit more disciplined on the on the campaign trail during that final stretch of the general election, much more so than he had been during the primary season, uh, much less uh, likely to hurl insults. Not that we can Kelly in, though, right? Uh, I think Steve Steve Bannon also, I think, was part of the folks pushing for that. He was not part of the Twitter brigade. He was saying, let's let's stay on message. But he was pushing a certain kind of message. Mm -hmm. And message was, you know, the idea of this anti-immigration stance or anti at least uh, (laughs) immigration in the sense that we've come to learn about it from the Trump campaign in the past uh, in the past year. Uh, But also, you know, pulling him to really not take heed from what establishment Republicans were telling him or to yield on his own rhetoric and his own stances toward that. There's this last clip I think that is instructive both about Bannon as a leader of Breitbart and about how his mindset is. This was also in a different episode of that same uh, radio program out in California. What we need to do is bitch slap the Republican Party and get those guys, you know, heaving too. And, and, and if we have to, we'll take it over. So in some ways, Bannon you know, has, in, in effect, helped take over the Republican Party. I think he's trying to a- administer a kind of shock therapy. He's been – although he came from Goldman uh, Sachs, he's been very critical of the fact that uh, folks uh, at the top levels of uh, major Wall Street firms weren't prosecuted uh, after the financial collapse. I think he's pushed – uh, in some ways, uh, Trump to cling hard to his economic populism line. You heard him earlier a little bit in that radio show kind of trying to pull him back from embracing the idea that that immigrants could be innovators and job creators and people who help Silicon Valley uh, propel itself forward as an economic engine. He said, you know, we've got more to have a sense of a civil society. I think that's part of what he's likely to promote while he's in the White House. So a lot of the conversation around Steve Bannon, his perceived effect on Trump and some of the issues that he brings to the forefront, keep saying the word normalizing an a normalization, this idea that a lot of consumers of news and media are asking questions about what the news media should do different in light of what is probably going to be a very different presidency. Like, what about the way we just do the work has to change and adapt to a new Trump reality? I don't have the answer for that. I mean, like, David, what are some things that you have seen so far? So the idea of normalization and look, I've had this hurled at me in recent days as much as anyone else. Uh, is that somehow by discussing somebody coolly and rationally and not simply denouncing them, uh, you are uh, enabling them to become part of the conversation. Whereas even if they're framed as being controversial, you're saying they're part of a reasonable part of discourse. And look, public radio, NPR is very much about civic, civic and civil discourse. So we don't tend to shout about people. On the other hand, our reporting can often stand for itself. And our analysis can, you know, while earned at its conclusions, as long as the reporting is shown and why you're there, uh, its analysis can stand for itself. You know, there were 
people who, you know, I asked Kurt Bardella, who worked for him three years as his chief uh, public relations person, a former Republican congressional staffer, and a guy who talked to Bannon pretty much every day for those three years. And I said, look, a lot of people criticized the articles you wrote as racist, sexist, and needlessly bigoted. Uh, how do you feel about that criticism? And he said, I agree with it. He says, I think it was totally that way. And here's my question. I mean, as loathsome as a lot of our listeners may find some of those headlines and some of those ideas, are they inconsistent with the campaign that Donald Trump ran for president? I mean, yeah. is, is there some sort of bait and switch here where Donald Trump campaigned one way and now when people say, oh, my goodness, he's putting Steve Bannon in an office right. down yeah. the hall it's from like, the Oval why Office. why not? He was campaign CEO. Right. And, yeah. and you're going to hear coverage of these ideas because those are the ideas that are going to be making policy in this country for the next four years. Absolutely. Just like Scott says, you know, this is part of what's influencing government. We'd be derelict not to cover it and derelict not to explore it and derelict not to try to understand it by talking to people who are immersed in these things, right? You, you can't ignore the people who are very much part of that. At the same time, in some ways, none of this is normal. I mean, you yeah, can right. sure so, you can so find campaign season has been you, abnormal. You, absolutely, you can find examples of people who frame stories as just saying, "Well, here's a controversial guy," and this is not just a controversial guy. Uh, you know, Roger Ailes was a very controversial guy. This guy is uh, controversial in a different order. I think that this is, you know, we have to be open to the idea that Donald Trump uh, surprises uh, us with both his competence, his insight, his ability to unify, and his uh, inspiration to get the country together and moving in one direction uh, fruitfully. And at the same time, I think that you can't wait for that to occur. You're seeing an extraordinary uh, opportunity for uh, one party uh, running both chambers of Congress and, and the White House to, to really act with alacrity on some major proposals. And I think this is a moment at which the press has got to be uh, on high alert, working muscularly. And it's not – let me give you one tiny example as why. Uh, Tim Russert, uh, when I interviewed him some years ago, and I think he was brilliant as an interviewer as we all think, but uh, he once said to me, well, the reason we didn't really raise questions about weapons of mass destruction uh, before the invasion of Iraq in a serious way is that congressional Democrats didn't do so. And I said to him, is that really the only uh, standard by which you want to judge it? Is it only worth raising if somebody else in a different party raises it? And then you could say, well, there's a party clash. Right now, the Democrats are way back on their heels and they may raise some issues, but they're going to have trouble getting the soapbox and people to pay attention. I think it's up to the press to say, we are flagging these issues on our own. We're going to do our reporting in public so that you can see why we think it's important and how we reach our conclusions and to be very fair all the way through. And we're going to make sure to report you know, vigorously on the successes of this administration. But, you know, I think it's our job to pay close attention because I don't think that this is an administration designed for transparency and accountability. David, thank you so much. I, I could listen to a podcast of you just like David Folkenfeld oh. breaks it down. Uh-oh. I'm all ears. Great, I'm here man. for you, baby. <laughs> well, thank you so much. What if we had thank you guys. A, a group of people and we watched movies and we could call it Folk and Flicks. Oh, boy. Yes. Uh, you know. But movies about the media. Movies about little Volkswagens. Okay. Thank you, David. All right, man. <laughs> we're going to cut Thanks, that out, David. right? It's no, we're going to keep that. Every Scott, joke Every Scott joke stays. Every Scott joke stays. Every Scott joke stays. They're good right. jokes. That's, one, that's, that's the rule that's in the handbook that you're passing down. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. Generations of podcasters. Uh-huh. Whatever have, Scott says. You don't even have kids, do you, Scott? But those are dad jokes. I do, and yes, they are. I would agree. Correct. Thanks, David. You bet. Okay, if you want to read and hear more about Steve Bannon, there's actually a great profile of him from a few months ago in Bloomberg Businessweek. The author of that piece uh, was Joshua Green. Terry Gross at NPR's Fresh Air, she actually talked with Joshua Green, and there's an episode with him talking about all of this 
It's up now. You can just search for Fresh Air in your podcast app. All right, after this, listener mail. Can't let it go. First to break. This podcast is supported by Squarespace, the simplest way to capture your passion with a beautiful website. If there's an idea or project that you're itching to show the world, you should. With Squarespace's simple tools and captivating templates, showcasing your hard work is the easy part. Show your support for the show by using offer code POLITICS at checkout. Set your website apart. Okay, before we get back to the show, there's a new podcast here at NPR that I'm super excited about. It is called Radio Ambulante, and it's entirely in Spanish. If you can listen, you should. They are doing incredible original stories on the show, stories about punk rock in Cuba, stolen books in Colombia, junk bonds in Puerto Rico. The show is hosted by novelist Daniel Alarcón. Radio Ambulante tells Latin American stories from the inside. Check it out on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, back to the show. Okay, we are back. Thank you for writing us with your questions and your comments about the show. We sincerely appreciate hearing from you all, and you know it's mean a lot. I'm sorry that we cannot answer each one individually, and they do inform our work. Our email address, if you want to write us or send us a recording, it's nprpolitics at npr.org. All right, question time. Here's one. Uh, we'll answer some more in an episode next week. This one comes from Maureen in Boise, Idaho. She writes, quote, I heard this week that there is concern that Trump will not have a traditional press pool at the White House. Can you tell us more about the relationship between the president and the press and what protections are in place to allow press access? Scott, you got this? Well, actually, I think the Trump campaign has said they do anticipate having a traditional press pool once he's president. But this uh concern was heightened this week because uh, after the media had all been sent home for the night, uh, Donald Trump snuck out of Trump Tower and uh, went to dinner at uh, 21 in New York. And at this point in uh, a new administration, the expectation of the media is uh, the president-elect doesn't go anywhere without what we call a protective pool. And there's a reason for that. This man is going to be the next president of the United States. And Mm -hmm. during this period, and once he actually assumes office, Uh, the American people have a right to know where he is. And if something, God forbid, goes wrong, uh, we want to have eyes on that and ears on it and microphones so that the American people will know what happened. We were talking about an episode when the September 11th attacks happened. And Andrew Card, then George W. Bush's chief of staff, was reluctant to have the the media uh, tag along with the president as he uh, left Florida and began to deal with that crisis. And Ann Compton of ABC said, if you leave the press pool behind in Florida and you go off, you take off in this plane and nobody can see where you are or where you are, there will be all sorts of conspiracy theories. The president's been killed. The president's been missed. The president's missing. The president's been kidnapped. We saw this on a smaller scale more recently when Hillary Clinton ditched her press pool on 9-11 of this year. And we had to rely on random cell phone video where she trips or stumbles or collapses getting in her limousine when she had, as it turned out, pneumonia. How much better might it have been for Hillary Clinton had she had some reporters with her to record what happened, to get the facts out quickly, authoritatively? You can put all those rumors to rest. So this is not just about a bunch of reporters and photographers wanting to tag along with Donald Trump to 21 and maybe get their own Trump stake. This is about accountability of the people who are doing the people's business. Right. And I do think 
the press, we in the press need to do a better job elevating. We need to do a better job in explaining to people why these things are important. Because otherwise, what people see and hear is what sounds like a whiny, navel-gazing press that says, you know, uh, how come I couldn't come with you to the golf course? Or how come I didn't know that you were going to go get steak? You know, and Donald Trump's not the first person to evade a press pool. You know, Barack Obama has done it. He's talked about the trappings of a press pool because he said the bear was loose, you know, and said that when he was out in Washington, D.C., you know, Michelle Obama, who doesn't necessarily have a protective pool. You remember she was out in Target with the sunglasses on? I remember that. And because they don't want – they want a little bit of, you know, some kind of normalcy. And, and any any human being would want a, a certain measure of privacy and any human being would chafe at this level of, of scrutiny. Barack Obama certainly did early on. I remember when the press pool was following President-elect Obama to a gym uh, early on and he was hey, – come on, you guys. You get your picture. Get lost. <laughs> But, but, you know, Maureen asked, what protections are in place to guarantee this level of access? The fact of the matter is, it's really just by convention. Yeah. I mean, this is just the way it's done, just as a presidential candidate releasing his tax returns is the way it but was done. But when did this become the way it's done? Domenico? Okay, so the uh, National Press Club and about uh, two dozen other uh, journalism organization sent a letter to President-elect Trump. And what they mention in here is that it dates back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I'll read you part of this. It says, the idea of a press pool that covers all the president's movements is one that dates back to the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Every president of both parties has treated this important tradition with respect. And there are some signs that the Trump, uh, new Trump administration may adhere to this. Uh, Sarah had mentioned starting uh, phone calls, for example, and having that kind of openness um, is an important first step. Sarah? I think part of the reason that this is that there's maybe an extra sort of level of concern is just that that Trump hasn't followed a lot of the other traditions that past presidential candidates or president elects have. And where's that with a badge of honor? And where's that with the badge of honor? I mean, he, he uh, as, as we noted, didn't release his tax returns. That was breaking with tradition. He didn't travel during the campaign uh, with the press, which uh, Hillary Clinton was slow to do, but did ultimately do. And so there are some indications that, you know, Trump kind of likes to do his own thing. And there's some concern that he may break with tradition in this area. We will see. All right. Maureen, thank you for your question. Now it's time for Can't Let It Go. This is how we usually end our weekly roundups. We talk about something that we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. But this week, I do declare, I'm going to insist, we go with otherwise. Politics-free zone. Let's promise ourselves, okay? Sort of. All right. That's that's something. <laughs> okay, so can I go first? All right. No one said yes, but I'm going to go first. Go, go ahead, Sam. Let's hear it. <laughs> um... <laughs> Close listeners to the podcast will know that I have mixed feelings about one Toronto rapper, Drake. I thought you said Toronto Raptor. They're involved too. They are? Let me tell you. Hold All on. Right. Anyways, there is an annual tradition at Toronto Raptors games uh, in Toronto, where Drake is from, called Drake Night. That is as annoying as Drake is omnipresent. Is that because you don't like basketball? Or I love the Spurs. That's oh. where I'm from. San Antonio Spurs gotcha. rep them for life. But right. this is Toronto. <laughs> Anyways, it's Drake night. Warriors are playing the Raptors. Warriors ultimately win. In the post-game interview, um, Kevin Durant is giving his interview, saying stuff, this and that. Drake, because he's gallivanting on the court, bumps into Durant. And Durant gives him this death stare. 
continue. They keep asking questions. At the end of this short interview, the interviewer says, so what do you think about Drake Knight? And uh, this was Drake Knight here, and uh, he's the one who just interrupted us. What, give me a taste of what the uh, trash talk was like, what the, uh, you know, the interaction is like with your, your buddy there. I don't give a damn about no damn Drake Knight. <laughs> That's my new motto. <laughs> Whenever anyone tells me to do anything that I don't want to do, I don't, give a damn I don't about care no. about your Drake Knight. <laughs> <laughs> Who's that? Sarah, okay, Sarah, go next. Okay, well, mine is not political either. Yay. Um, and one of the best things about, for me, about this election being done is getting to spend a little more time with my family. Oh, no. no. <laughs> and, and that's not just something you say like an out-of-work politician. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not out of work, for the record. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like I have been spending more time with my dog, Martin, and oh. um, my family, which includes a five-year-old named Arden. And um, one of the lovely things I got to experience this week being home more is just like the cute little off-the-wall things that five-year-olds say. And I promise I'm not going to do this like every week and can't let it go. But you but could. I is, would love that. This is, this is my non-political can't let it go. So this week, my Arden, we now have time to like have thoughtful conversations about things like a poem he was trying to write, apparently. And he, he goes, Mom, one sounds better. Martin farted on Arden. Or Arden farted on Martin. Hey. <laughs> See, it's not funny because it's it's funny to me because it's my kid. It's funny. Kids <laughs> say kids. the darndest. I'll thing. leave it up to our listeners which of those has a better ring to it. But Budding poet. that's my life post election. Maybe you can go work it. for Drake. <laughs> It'd be better lyrics. Oh, let me stop. <laughs> Scott, this is not hot ninety seven. You don't need to start <laughs> a, a war. Okay, listen, Drake, if you're a listener. <laughs> You know where I'm at. Oh, my my can't let it Scott, go walks go on four paws as well. Um, uh-huh. I have two dogs, Rufus and Rosie, and they have zero interest in politics, and uh-huh. that has always kept me sane. And so I thought it was interesting that at the end of this political season, three of my NPR colleagues have gone out and gotten their own yeah. four-legged friend, this including Domenico's new doggy Shay and chocolate, chocolate Labradoodle. Chocolate Labradoodle, who is. The cutest, awesome. the and, cutest and it's dog. And has taken to me very nicely. I, I needed a little joy. And our podcast producer, Brent, has got a new uh, Salty, who is a Maltese. The tiniest salty. Maltese you'll ever see in your life. I got to hold this little Aww. beauty last week. Made my heart melt. And, and our, our editor, Arnie Seipel, has got my a editor. Buster. Buster, the new Black lab, lab mutt. Yeah. Of some stripe. He's adorable. I met so him adorable. last week. Aww. And they're all getting lots of cuddles, and it just reinforces that old Washington truism. If you want a friend in Washington. Get a dog. And Buster met Shay uh, oh, nice. yesterday. Nice. Political uh, play date? Yeah, it was it was cute. The yeah. two the two of them, uh, you know, they got along just fine. Yeah. As a sidebar, I So have, we can. It's possible. We can yeah. have unity in this country. <laughs> I am, through a long uh, course of events, a co-parent of my own dog, a beautiful pit bull terrier named Zora Neale Hurston. Last year, weeks of the campaign, I've had no time with her because everyone's been so busy. But now that I enter Absentee this, dog father. Exactly. Now that we enter this post-campaign uh, season of our lives, I can give that dog some real love again. Excited. And her eyes are watching you like you're a god. Hey. I was wondering who was going to... had to do I it. I was trying to bring one in, but no. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Domenico, you're next. Yeah, well, okay, so we said we we're going to keep politics out of this. Well, mine sort of does, uh, but I was outraged, outraged. I know everybody <laughs> in here is like, Domenico, okay, uh, you are outraged about something. Like... <laughs> And the sun rises every day. You know, the sky is blue. Yeah, the sun doesn't actually rise. Like, the earth rotates. But anyway, whatever. Point is, uh, Dorsey Shaw at BuzzFeed tweeted out 
a photo that uh, started wide, then zoomed in close to identify a man who she says, can someone tell me why this man is wearing a stopwatch during the briefing? Where was the photo? This was at the White House briefing. Uh-huh. With no, a, a presidential press briefing, conference. Say in Pre- the room. Presidential press conference at the White House. President Obama was there that day. The press was there to ask questions of the president and... Miss Shaw wanted to know why this man had a stopwatch hanging around his neck. And I said, that is the Scott Horsley. He is a radio star. (laughs) So he's got to get the time. And part of that is being to time. If you don't know, now now you you know. know. Okay. And Scott, we all know, is to time. Like literally like to the second, to the millisecond. So it works for, for Scott very well. I will just say uh, I want to give props to Brian Clifford, a follower of mine, because um, he picked up on the fact that if you don't know, now you know that reference, not Hamilton. It is <laughs> a reference to Biggie. Thank you very much. And this person said, hey, going to have to deduct points for failing to work a Flava Flav reference into this otherwise very good tweet. I agree. So Scott, Flava Flav Horsley. Snaps to you, right? And we're out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's a wrap. Every night is Drake Night in Canada. We'll be back in your feed early next week with the pre-Thanksgiving episode. We'll talk about the the latest news and spend some more time on listener questions. Until then, keep up with all of our coverage on politics at nprpolitics.org. Also on the NPR One app and on your local public radio station. And thanks so much to those of you who wrote to say that you have given to your local public radio station. That supports our work here on the podcast. So if you want to chip in, go to npr.org slash stations. Find your station, donate, tell them we sent you. All right, I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Even you, Drake. <laughs>